Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Now, according to the normal way of thinking about the, uh, the Christian religion, uh, we cannot identify with Jesus. We have to imitate Jesus, but to say, I am God, as Jesus said, is for us uh, blasphemy. Mm-hmm. However, in the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, He who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. Wow. And we are all to do that, to wake up to our Jesus within us. This is blasphemy in the normal way of thinking in Christianity, but it's the very essence of Gnosticism and of the Thomas Gospel. And heaven, that uh, desired goal of most people, is, is within us? All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are magnified dreams and what dreams are are manifestations in image form of the energies of the body in conflict with each other not okay boomer cause you nailed it papa joe that is indeed the essence of gnosticism to unleash from our hearts those archetypal cosmic energies, those gods, those heavens, those worlds within us, while becoming fully human and what is best in being a human being. To become divine, too. And as my friend Jim West says, sharing that divinity. That's why you're here at the Virtual Alexandrian Aeon Bytenostic Radio. At minimum, you want to be more than, as Neil Gaiman wrote in How to Talk to Girls at Parties, a decaying lump of meat hanging on a frame of calcium. Or as W.B. Yeats wrote, a soul fastened to a dying mammal. The only true God, the only real God, is the God of meat. All of this is experiencing Christ consciousness, the radiance of the Logos. To do this, the best road is the example of the father of all heresy and the father of Gnosticism, as the church fathers called him. That is Simon Magus. In light of the resurrection of God's holy prophets, we are recanting our support and declaring you a heretic. This is exemplified in the Clementine recognitions during a verbal and magical battle between Simon Peter, the representation of the establishment and orthodoxy, 
and Simon Magus, the representation of freedom and Gnosticism. At one point, Simon Magus explains to Simon Peter, But you will, as it were bewildered with astonishment, constantly stop your ears that they should not be defiled by blasphemies. And you will turn to flight, for you will find nothing to reply. But the foolish people will agree with you, indeed will come to love you, for you teach what is customary with them. But they will curse me, for I proclaim something new and unheard of. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. That's it. That's how we begin tapping into the essence of Gnosticism. We remember and proclaim something new and unheard of. Break away from the Borg norm. Radicalize our souls and reveal to the world and bewildered oligarchy the innovative and artistic ways of myth, magic, and meaning. We show them a world without sin where Sophia returns to heal the fragmented psyche of humanity. Such is the dangerous promise of Simon Magus. I said many moons ago when I started learning about Gnosticism, that all spiritual roads don't lead to Jesus, but to Simon Magus, the true paradigmatic manifestation of the magician, the swashbuckling keeper of ancient mysteries and the honor of the lost goddess, and the wild wing wanderer stirring deep inside each one of us. By the power of truth, I, while living, have conquered the universe. Simon was the true, chosen successor of John the Baptist, the greatest threat to the early church, the basis for Marlowe's Faustus. He was the real guide of Jung in the Red Book, and Philip K. Dick said he still lived when Dick accepted in the exegesis he was too deep into Gnosticism to back out. Boy... That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. Maybe Simon Magus and Simon Peter are two forces eternally battling inside our minds. All over the very cosmos. Maybe Jesus and Simon Magus are one and the same, as John Munter argues. Or Paul and Simon Magus are one and the same, as Robert Price argues. Maybe Simon Magus is the Araman villain of humanity, as Frank DeVita contends. But maybe, or more like likely, Simon Magus is our higher trickster self that thrives for individuality and the sacredness of every human right in the Black Iron Prison. As Simon Magus said in his great declaration, Thou and I are but one. Life is a state of mind. We are not of one mind, but we now speak with one voice. And when Simon is united to his own lost half, Helen or the Anoya, 
the earthly manifestation of Sophia, everything is possible and we can seamlessly access the promise of Gnosticism. That is, to gain that Christ consciousness and have those gods, those heavens, those worlds within us unleash upon the fucking Archons. Nothing can stop you, and you will do so many wonders. I just know it. We are perpetually trapped in a never-ending spiral of life and death. I often think about the god who blessed us with this cryptic puzzle, and wonder if we'll ever have the chance to kill him. But the creator gods and their but slaves in the establishment have spent thousands of years suppressing the father of heresy and Ellen. So this is how liberty dies. With thunderous applause. Aeon Bite and its astral guests have been instrumental in revealing the truth about this unholy power couple. And I'm so honored to do so again with two astral guests who just released a book that shrewdly brings the latest scholarship and mystic insights on Simon, Magus, and Helen. The book is When God Had a Wife, The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine in the Judo-Christian Tradition. And the authors, as well as our astral guests, are Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince. The book is a fabulous and breathtaking journey through ancient times to witness the wisdom goddess vanish by the censorship of orthodoxy, all the way to a must-have summary of Simon Magus and Helen and how they brought the goddess back and eventually hid her in plain sight for us to discover. Today, I am the beginning, the end, the one who is many. As a bonus, since this topic is really a cornerstone of Aeon Bite, I'll provide a past interview with Robert Price, where he also provides a bigly historical view of Simon Magus. As another bonus, I'll provide our interview with April DeConnick on the goddess in Judaism and Christianity, including the feminine identity of the Holy Spirit, based on her book, Holy Misogyny. You'll be blown away at this episode that is basically an audiobook. I gotta have more cowbell! We need this gnosis during these unbalanced times, where wisdom is as lost as she was in the Old Testament, when her son, the Demiurge or Yaldibaldi, drove her underground in her aspects of a Shira or a Nat. We need a new and unheard way to approach life, nothing more than the ancient mysteries of the Gnostics. Our government is irredeemable. Our societal leaders are beyond corrupt. And our economical systems do not serve the common man. We need to burn it all down with the boundless fire Simon Magus wrote about in his great declaration. It's better to burn out than to fade away. I like me. Civilization and the very universe depends on it. 
I think Simon would love this quote by Tom Robbins. Disbelieve in magic can force a poor soul into believing in government and business. This whole thing is insane! As Lynn and Clive write in their book, for Simon Magus it comes down to the world being the product of rape. As creator Nick Pisolato said about True Detective, the world itself is the crime. Lynn, Clive, and Nick are all right. We must finally stop those hating angels from violating us for so many aeons. You were raped? Oh, at first, yes. We do this by embracing and becoming the story of Simon and Ellen. There is so little info on these two figures, but trust me, more will come soon as we awaken together here in the desert of the real, in this terra damnata. To consider the possibility that God does not like you, never wanted you, in all probability, he hates you. We don't need him. We don't like we. we gotta Fuck damnation, man. Fuck redemption. We are God's unwanted children. So be it. Thanks for being on this dark odyssey with me through the gnashing rocks of orthodoxy. For your support and for your feedback, I am eternally grateful. But enough of my jabberwocky. Let us get another step closer to discovering Simon and the Lost Goddess with our interview with Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince on their book, when God had a wife. We didn't wake him, and you didn't wake him either. He's waking because it's his time to wake and feed on you, apparently, on your story. She didn't say story, she said souls. Same thing. Souls made of stories, not atoms. Everything that ever happened to us, people we loved, people we lost, people we found again against all the odds. He threatens to wake, they offer him a pure soul, the soul of the Queen of Years. Stop it, you're scaring her. Good, she should be scared. She's sacrificing herself, she should know what that means. Do you know what it means, Mary? A god chose me. It's not a god. It'll feed on your soul, but that doesn't make it a god. It is a vampire. And you don't need to give yourself to him. Hey, do you mind if I tell you a story, one you might not have heard? All the elements in your body were forged many, many millions of years ago in the heart of a faraway star that exploded and died. That explosion scattered those elements across the desolations of deep space after so so many millions of years these elements came together to form new stars and new planets and on and on it went the elements came together and burst apart forming shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings until eventually they came together to make you you are unique in the universe there is only one Mary Galel and there will never be another Getting rid of that existence isn't a sacrifice, it is a waste. This is the AM Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince to discuss their new book, which I really enjoyed, When God Had a Wife, The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine in the Judo-Christian Tradition. Thanks for uh, joining AM Byte, and how are you doing, Clive and Lynn? Well, thanks very much for having us on. We're doing fine. Thank you very much. Yes, and very good to be here. 
Pleasure is all ours, and as I mentioned before the interview, your book Templar Mysteries really was part of my deprogramming long ago when I was still sort of a a Roman Catholic, and it really helped me and opened new vistas of possibilities and and really was the fuel of my interest in finding out the truth about Mary Magdalene and the hidden Christianity. So I feel this book is sort of a full circle and your work, again, was really influential to eventually uh, me creating Aeon Bite, which I hope has helped others in that. So thank you for that. I wanted to make that public and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Really appreciate you saying that. So thank you. It means a lot. We must put on our resume um, Vista opening. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all need vistas. We need to have our eyes open. And your work has opened so many eyes to the truth. This book was... Uh, Wow, it was a, just a great read, and I love how you are working on your scholarship, on your research, you're changing things as more data comes in, as more texts are out, and other scholars who you quote who do a lot of hard work, you are quoting them too. So we're all sort of working together to uh, for the benefit of humanity, right? Well, yes, I mean, what we pride ourselves on is, is bringing together a, a lot of disparate points of view, but mainly um, the kind of academic points of view, academic discoveries and revelations that the average person doesn't get to even hear about. Certainly not the average churchgoer or synagogue goer. That is true, and uh, that's why we do it. And it was somebody here with us who's joining us who's also done great work in opening the eyes of people, and that is the Moondog Vance Sachi. How are you doing, Vance? Oh, I'm uh, doing great. I'm sitting on the edge of my chair to find out if Jehovah had a prenuptial agreement. <laughs> <laughs> or as you said, a good divorce lawyer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but as we'll find out, uh, the divorce was actually the lawyer called the Orthodox Church. And this is the great mystery and really, the I feel, the great crime in and cover up in the history of humanity that could have made a difference. So we want to unpack that. So I guess the first question is, Again, with your work, uh, Templar Mysteries, Lynn, you wrote a book on Mary Magdalene, which is also excellent. Uh, what uh, was the process, or why did you decide to write When God Had a Wife? I think it was a book that we um, we were meant to write, certainly. Um, we've been aiming to write to bring together um, not only Christianity's um, defamation of um, the sacred feminine, but actually take it further back to the ancient Israelite religion. We've been aiming to do that really for a while. Um, and it, we did um, Templar Revelation, then we did uh, Mass of Christ. And, and so this is the third in the trilogy and it's kind of the culmination because we have taken it right back. The story of the the lost goddess or other lost goddesses, certainly the demeaned and degraded sacred feminine. And really, though, her persistence, I mean, the, the positive elements, her persist, persistence in people's psyche and the way they work to bring her back in one form or another. And now, of course, in the 21st century, this is the perfect time for her to make her dramatic comeback. 
I would agree, and I do apologize. I call it Templar Mystery. It's Templar Revelations. I actually have my book still on the shelf, but I was, again, have family over if we were watching some uh, documentaries last night. So it's sort of, uh, this all mixes in my head, all this wonderful scholarship <laughs> and oh, content I'm taking from, uh, you know, in my work, I get to good enough. I can watch good shows on Gaia, can read various books. So it's a wonderful time for choices. Like you just said, we have this information and it's about of just getting out in the public so and uh, so we should probably start out again as vance said with a yahweh or jehovah your book uh, takes the reader on a fascinating journey of archaeology and history in ancient times in palestine egypt mesopotamia to really give us a the zeitgeist of what it was what the people were doing back then who they were worshiping what their challenges were the the wars the conquering and it's a great uh, overview and summary of those times highly recommended but uh, again we should go to who yahweh is and uh, you bring some fascinating theories of this deity who's actually very complex and very interesting. So what are some of the theories who, who Yahweh might have been? Um, I like uh, the one, if you could explain about how he might have really started out his career as the Egyptian god Amun. Yahweh, or uh, Jehovah, as it's sort of more often known, because that's the way it came through in, in Latin, um is it's actually a real mystery um because it's a name that is not really a name it it just means i am who i am uh or i will be i'll be who i will be it's it's actually an evasion which of course is very odd because in the ancient world gods had very very specific names and and just to to give a little bit of uh, background and context to this one of the important things in when you read the the Hebrew Bible or you know the Old Testament, um, it's obviously supposed to be just about one God. It is occasionally given different titles, um, but there's really two um, because in Genesis you have the God is God that appears there, the, the God that creates the world and creates Adam and Eve is called El. And then suddenly at the point where Moses has his um, experience or encounter with at the burning bush, um, God announces himself as Yahweh, or again, this kind of I am who I am kind of thing, um, which is now taken to mean it's just a sort of change of name of the same God. But the evidence is it's a completely different God. Um, and there's lots of, ideas and theories about who Yahweh was and who he was based on. There's a very popular theory that links him to the um, religion of Akhenaten, the pharaoh, the, the heretic pharaoh who introduced, who, who is believed by many to be the first monotheist who introduced his, the worship of the sun disk. Um, um, but there's equally good evidence, and I think I mean, there's not enough to say 100% about any of these, but I think the, the, the theory that we find most persuasive is he's actually um, derived from an, the Egyptian god Amun, who was actually the god that Akhenaten tried to displace and suppress. 
and the reason for that we, we say that is that Ammon is also an evasive name. It's 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 not really a name that means anything. It, it's a name that means uh, I'm not going to tell you what my name is really, and uh, and Ammon also, although there, there were images of him, um, it was also understood that those images were just. Uh, kind of decoys and diversions and that nobody actually really knew either Ammon's real name or his real form. They were both mysteries. Very, very unusual in the ancient world. And the only parallel to that is a god who wouldn't tell you his name and whose form you know you weren't allowed to depict in any form who wouldn't reveal himself in any form um uh, which is Yahweh so there seems to be a link between the two and of course it does come through um you know the Egyptians so the Israelites coming out of Egypt being led by Moses bringing with him bringing with, with them um ideas that they picked up in Egypt so it's probably not as simple as just saying Ammon became Yahweh because uh, in the ancient world, people did kind of mix and, and match their gods. Um, so they bring gods and goddesses. They would bring attributes from one in with the other and they change their form uh, you know, quite fluidly. But we do think there's a big influence of Egyptian Ammon on there. Whoever Yahweh is, the one thing we are 99% sure of is that the origin was Egyptian and not um, Israelite or Canaanite. And could he also be related to Set, the, the god of the desert in uh, Egyptian lore? And strangely enough, I was just going to say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yes, it's, um, I mean, uh, modern people, Westerners, tend to think of Set, insofar as they know of him, as being the, the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian equivalent of our Satan. Um, because he was depicted in some of the, the most famous Egyptian myths as being an evil force, you know, dismembering the great god Osiris, for example, you know, and, and doing terrible things to, to his son, Horus, um, and, and, and his consort, Isis. Um, but actually the Egyptians were much more sophisticated than that in their understanding of their gods. Um, and to them... Set, yes, he did all those things, but he was somehow necessary to, to the balance of power and he was necessary in the story. Um, and he was, you know, and he was, his worship was seen as perfectly valid worship. Um, and he was, as you say, um, God of the desert, God of the dry, harsh, hot places, which of course the ancient Egyptians would be more than familiar with. Whereas the, if you like, the good God, Osiris, was God of the Nile Valley, the Nile Valley in flood, which meant fertility and meant, meant food. Um, whereas set, um, what set implied was hard times and famine. So, so there were a lot of negatives associated with set, but he wasn't the out and out equivalent of Satan. Um, but of course, um, Yahweh does share some characteristics with set. Um, the, the whole idea of condemning the Israelites when they fled out of Egypt to wandering the desert for 40 years um, was somewhat strange. Um, and um, <laughs> not perhaps, you know, um, the kind of thing they wanted to hear. <laughs> Particularly as it wasn't, very, it wasn't a very big desert, so they must have gone round in circle. <laughs> they, they didn't have Uber or GPS back then. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't have GPS. Um, but... Um, 
but it was you know it was very odd but um certainly he's you, you can't say that Yahweh you know let his people off um uh, you know without without giving them a hard time um basically you know um they had you know innumerable problems and hardships and he did did therefore behave rather like set oh that is for certain he's a he's a complex and moody deity and of oh, course yes. as mm. you have you have pointed out and many do accept uh, in genesis when uh, god is creating adam and eve in the garden he's speaking or in plural but what we have here is the elohim so we have a whole group of gods yeah certainly you know it, it's been known for a long time that i mean the, the very first sentence of the bible is um uh, well a, a mistranslation or you know, at least a questionable translation you know in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth because the word in hebrew is elohim and as um well one of the first things you learn about hebrew is that anything with an im ending an im ending is plural so strictly speaking the first line of the bible should be in the beginning the gods created the heaven and the earth now it is um it is permissible in hebrew to actually use a plural um uh, of an individual but only when you really uh, that that individual is known to be one of a set you know for, for example um uh, the cherubim of of the um, ark of the covenant and of the of, of solomon's temple um although they're individuals they are they they also have the em ending but that's because they know there's more than one they're one of a group so you could translate the first line of the bible as in the beginning a god created heaven and the earth but it still means there are other ones and the, the interesting for us as we do, went into this more and more is to realize that even the um hebrew bible um recognizes that there is more than one god um it's just that one god yahweh uh, is the one that has a kind of special relationship with the people of Israel. Um, but, you know, even in the book of Genesis, you get um, people make, using phrases like, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Um, and so even those books are written from the position, not that there's only one God, it's not monotheistic, it's that there's only one God that, that those people have pledged themselves to worship. And, and it's not until quite late when you get to the prophet Isaiah that you actually get an explicit statement um, that there is no other God. Um, so th throughout the, the, the Hebrew Bible, you see this process of gradually becoming more and more monotheistic. But it doesn't start out that way. And that's clearly, you know, the evidence is overwhelming that in Moses' time, um, all the way through, actually, through King David's time, King Solomon's time, the Israelites were not monotheists, which is you know, going to be a hugely surprising statement to many people listening to this, but it's as certain as anything is in um, biblical scholarship. But, I mean, not, not just a, a surprise, but a shock. I mean, because um, it, it sounds like blasphemy. You know, it sounds like blasphemy to say the Bible itself, you know, is is it talks of many gods. 
um, and not just to sneer at them, you know, as being fakes that the pagans worship kind of thing, but actually, you know, just make a statement. There are all these other gods. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that people will, will think of as being utterly shocking, but we haven't made it up. You know, it's there. You make a very good case. And I think it's interesting because, I mean, when even back when I was a Catholic and I'm reading mythology and understanding and I'm expanding my horizons. But one thing that's pretty much a fact beyond the idea, as you say, that there's many gods in the Old Testament is that most gods had a consort. Now, of course, there are exceptions in history. I believe Artemis, the god Ptah, Thoth, a few, but the major gods had to have a consort. And of course, as you argue in your book, this was a, it's, it was a way for, to keep the balance in divinity and the, and the psyche of humanity and the, the civilization itself. The major gods had a concert. So in the Old Testament, we do find this goddess and she's almost hidden in plain sight. And this is the god Asherah. Could you tell the audience where we find Asherah and what was her role? Uh, yes, there is the, there's a name that occurs throughout the, um, the Old Testament, which I say Asherah or Asherah. Um, and for a long time, when the, when the Bible, Certainly, in in the in the Christian religion, um, as the Bible was translated and, and spread, um, nobody actually knew what this word meant. Um, it was clearly something that uh, the people of Israel, you know, going going back into you know, the, the earliest times, uh, something that they worshipped, um, and from association, it seemed they worshipped in the form of a tree. Um, and what happened was that because nobody actually knew what this word meant, um, it eventually ended up being translated, for example, into the King James Bible as being groves, you know, that they just worshipped in groves. It wasn't until the early part of the 20th century that archaeology began to solve this um, uh, mystery when it was found when they were doing excavations in the old Canaanite territories and they found lots and lots of um you know, clay tablets setting out the Canaanite mythology. You know, Canaanites, obviously this is the, the, the promised land that the Israelites came into, um, which had their their big creator god was El, which was shared in common with Genesis. And in the Canaanite mythology, El had a wife whose name was Asherah. So clearly that that is what... These, these Asherah that were being worshipped by the Israelites meant it was a goddess, and it was a goddess that was considered the wife or consort of God. Um, so, as you said, hidden in plain sight, she's very clearly there, um, even within the text of the Old Testament, once it's translated correctly, and once you know that it's a, it's a name, not a, not a description. Um, but since then, during the 20th century, particularly from the 1980s onwards, there were also quite a lot of archaeological discoveries um, of, for example, inscriptions to Yahweh and his Asherah, um, which completely confirm what, what you would get from reading the Bible properly and literally, um, that 
as you would expect, God had a consort because that's just the way, you know, you just, as you said, people expected that. It just was entirely natural, you know, just as a man would have a wife, as a king would have a queen, a god would have um, uh, a wife, a consort, um, who had her own place and function within the great scheme of things, you know, particularly where women were concerned, something for somebody for women to worship and appeal to. But also there is that balance because, you know, in in the um in the Canaanite mythology, there is a um a kind of balancing between El and Asherah uh, that she almost um corrects him when he's going wrong. You know, if he makes a wrong decision, she's the one that pulls him back. So there is a, a definite balance in there. You know, she it's not it's not just a little wife just just to make the picture <laughs> yeah. complete. She has she has a function, you know, in respect of him. She has a proper role. But it, but if people, if this is the first time people have heard of Asherah, they might be tempted to think, oh well, she, it, worship of Asherah was obviously, you know, just a, a brief thing, or it was represented some kind of heresy or backsliding to evil old ways. But actually, the real shocking thing is that Asherah was officially worshipped in the Temple of Solomon, and. She was officially worshipped throughout its its known life um, for about, I think I'm right in saying about 70% of the time. There was actually um, a statue to her in Solomon's temple next to the representation of, of Yahweh. Um, so basically, Yahweh and his Asherah were officially part of temple worship. Now, the fact that most people, certainly most people of the Jewish faith today, don't even know about that. Is jaw-dropping. I would agree, and it really, again, we're talking about the greatest cover-up and blind spot and missing part of humanity's uh, collective and personal psyche without uh, Asherah, as you write, like Yahweh, she was a complex goddess. She was fertility. She was love. She was wisdom. She was uh, really the supreme mother, sister, and friend of the Israelites. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, it, essential for the the whole uh, health really you know of the nation i mean psychological health and you know i'm reminded as i'm sure you have been over the course of your researches miguel um i'm reminded about the you know my discovery to, for myself of the ancient egyptian um uh, trinity of of father mother and child you know which is very different from the christian one you know father, son, and uh, thought to be male Holy Spirit. So so we're looking at um, the idea of um, divine representations of, of certain archetypes, certain gender archetypes, and the effect they have on the average worshipper. And the idea that, you know, Yahweh had a wife, a consort, who women could go to and not just worship, but go to with their problems, with their, you know, their pregnancy problems, their sex problems, you know, their private thoughts. Um, and the idea that she was removed from them, and not just from women, but from everybody, she was removed by, um, you know, the bustling patriarchy who in their arrogance thought that they could make the you know make the world again in their own image basically right yeah without um the without the the fuss and flamboyance of of a female uh, archetype there 
Um, and, you know, basically it is beyond shocking and it's terrifying what can happen and the effects it has on generations upon generations of people because there is a longing in people for the sacred feminine. There is a longing, um, a, a, a deep visceral desire to be in contact with a goddess. Well said, and I think you're 100% right. Removing the archetype really removes a, a building block of a civilization, of an individual soul, of uh, so much. So, But that's why we're talking about this. That's why I'm so excited, because we need to restore Ashir in some way or another. And your book goes a long distance. But also, we should talk about the dangers that might come with, uh, well, the full package that comes with the goddess, because I was really fascinated by, and it's important too, as we go down the line to understand the complex goddess and how she evolved and survived throughout history. But you bring up the fascinating and fearsome Ugarit goddess Anat. And mm. uh, she, I've never, I have an encounter like that. I was like, almost like, God, Kali, you better get out of the way because Anat is even more <laughs> scary. Maybe tell the audience a little bit Anat and how she plays with Ashira. Yeah. Um, yes, there was a, uh, Anat was a, another goddess that formed part of uh, ancient Israelite worship. Um, certainly, again, at the beginning of the story, when I say beginning, the, the period when they uh, settled and conquered the, the, the promised land. Um, and Anat is a really scary goddess. Um, she's a war goddess. Um, again, it, it's not a unique thing at all to that culture, but you did have not all goddesses were maternal, affectionate, loving. Um, there was also the... Kali side, as you said, of, of goddesses. Uh, there were um, war goddesses, and Anat was one that, um, I mean, she, the, in the, the mythology of the Canaanites, um, she gloried in war, in blood. Um, she's rather like some of the legends of Sekhmet in in Egypt of, you know, wading up to her, well, it, it was euphemistically in the, in the legends of Anat, euphemistically up to her skirts mm. in blood. Yep. <laughs> um, she was paired in Canaanite mythology with the god Baal and they fought together, but she was actually the, 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 the scariest of them. Um, she was also kind of very, very, um, physical and sexual can we say um you know she got up to all kinds of um of mischief that maybe we don't want to go into in, in, in it didn't you know. matter if you were an animal a god or a human if she was fond of you you were going to bed with her <laughs> oh she if she was just in that mood you, you know she would just <laughs> grab whoever was nearest mm. um so um uh, and and she was certainly worshipped uh, it's it's a, a process of something that we've come to understand because going back to temporal revelation, which we did talk about this a little bit, um, is that there was certainly quite late. We're talking about not like, fourth century uh, BC. Um, there was uh, certainly at least one um, Israelite or Hebrew community in Egypt. Uh, made up of mercenaries, a place called Elephantine Island, um, who worshipped Yahweh um, and worshipped Anat alongside him. Um, this, again, was only discovered from archaeology gradually throughout the, the, the 20th century, but it 
certainly happened there was a Jewish temple in Egypt. Well, I say Jewish, I'd, I'd probably say Hebrew because it depends what what period you, you, we're talking about, you know, because um, obviously Jewish refers to the tribe of Judah, which is just one of the 12 tribes. And if you're going back to Moses' time, you know, we, we should really use, say that, the more generic word Hebrew or Israelites. Um, but there was this temple uh, where they worshipped Yahweh alongside Anat. Um, most people assumed, and we did when we wrote Temple Revelation, that um, this mercenary community had, um, because they were in Egypt, had absorbed a goddess uh, um, from you know, the, the, the pagans that they were living amongst, um, which is why Anat was worshipped in their temple. Um, the research we've done then, and which is presented in the new book, um, really shows that actually that's wrong, that that community has been there a lot longer than most people think and actually was retaining the original version of the religion. Um, like, you know, they hadn't added a goddess um that the mainstream religion had taken a goddess out um but it was anat not asherah so how did that happen and again the the reconstruction that we can make i think the the, the best reconstruction is that right back at the beginning um el the great creator god the father god was paired with asherah and yahweh was originally conceived of as one of el's sons who had been given the people of Israel um, as his, um, I was going to say property, that's not quite the right word, but um, in the way that El divided the 70 nations of the world up amongst his 70 sons and gave you know, one God presided over each of the peoples. And one, the, the God that was given to um, the people of Israel was Yahweh. So that's how it started off. That's why there's a sudden change of, of name that I talked about earlier. But originally we think El and Asherah were paired and Yahweh was paired with Anat. Um, and at that time, that makes a lot of sense because if you, this is the period of what they call the period of the judges. It's after the conquest of the promised land, but before, about 200 years later, the setting up of the kingdom of Israel under David. And if we're reading that period, the Israelites are almost permanently at war with the Canaanites, Philistines, and people. So to have, uh, and that's when Yahweh is also at his most warlike and bloodthirsty. So it makes sense for them to have paired him with a war goddess, Anat. Later, when things settle down and the kingdom's established and it's all a bit more peaceable, Anat is really not a good role model for for for, <laughs> not for a civilized society, <laughs> but for the for the daughters of Israel, you know. So, um, as often happened in the ancient world, there's sort of a realignment and adjustment and absorbing. And Asherah becomes um, is sort of transferred to become Yahweh's wife, um, which did happen because in Canaanite mythology, sometimes Asherah and Anat, mother and daughter, got mixed up. You know, it was um, they, they were very fluid in their god and goddess forms. Um, so that's what we think happened. I mean, Anat is fascinating in a, a very, very scary way. Oh, and, and she's still being worshipped in 
very late amongst the sort of expatriate communities in Egypt. Yeah, I mean, the, but the, the thing about the Elephantine Island community that Clive was talking about, I mean, as, as he said, there were um, mercenaries. I mean, there were soldiers. So that you couldn't get a more appropriate goddess to worship than Anat, you know, who's often depicted with a spear and a shield and armour. You know, she she was quite something. You know, he didn't mess with Anna. Nope. <laughs> and uh, as you write, she does, and speaking of the period of judges, Anna does appear, she manifests as the judge uh, Deborah. Hmm. Uh, yes, there's a, a big tie-up. Um, it, it's recovering all this evidence, not just for a goddess, but for the place of women, the role of women in ancient Israelite um, society and religion. You know, and, and one of the big things, there's a whole tradition of uh, wise women, which it, it's there in the Hebrew Bible, but um, it, it's not given the emphasis it should really have. But it seems to be a whole tradition that is connected with the goddess, um, and you have Deborah, who's one of the judges. She's also described as a prophetess. Um, and she also has this title, which um, is a, a mother in Israel, which appears to be just some kind of polite term for you know, maybe a, a slightly more senior lady or something. Um, but again, from the work of, of, of scholars that have been into this and pieced, the, pieced all the languages, the linguistics together, actually appears to be a title of a line of wise women that certainly existed up until the time that the kingdom was established during this period of warfare. And they did have a role in war. They had a role as counsellors to, um, you know, the, the kings, the war leaders, the generals, um, Again, they seem to have this role, rather like I was saying with Asherah and El, that part of the, the wise women's role, the roles of the mothers in Israel, was to actually pull the men back. Uh, and there's you know, stories in the Bible of this happening even to King David, to kind of keep, keep the men on the straight and narrow um, through their advice. But also the ordinary people could go and ask for uh, ask for advice. They, they also appear to have been uh, you know, practicing divination. They were oracles. But so they had this function in war. There is you know, another one, an early one of the judges, a male judge, who is called Shamgar uh, ben Anat, which actually means Shamgar son of Anat, which you know, is an honorific that was given to warriors. Again, you know, honouring this uh, this fearsome war goddess. So it shows that you know even the Israelites of that period have uh, adopted her as uh, as a war goddess, and just the whole story of all these different roles that were given to the women of Israel that uh, almost completely erased. And even though the stories are still in the Bible, it's really really easy to miss the point. Yes, but uh, you put it all together very well. So maybe talk about the process that happened as we want to start moving towards uh, the later times and start understanding the movement, the true movement is Christianity, as we will tell the audience soon. But basically, you had the reformations of King Josiah, and that was to suppress the the female goddess and sort of make Yahweh supreme. So the question is, 
why did they decide to take care of Ashira? I mean, like you said, Anat made sense because the Israel was no longer as warlike or Jerusalem was no longer. They had to build a, a proper civilization. What was the reasons, though, for maybe suppressing Ashira? It, it seems to have been a, the result of a fairly long process. And in a, in a way, perhaps a, a series of historical accidents, because what happened was that there was this special one-to-one relationship between the God Yahweh and this the, the people, the, the, the people of Israel. They, they'd made this covenant, this deal to give him their exclusive worship in return for his protection. And then when things went well for, for the Israelites, everything was fine, you know, the the, the bargain was, was being kept up. But then there was a whole series of setbacks and disasters for particularly the tribe of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, that ends up with the them being exiled, or the, the elite at least being exiled to Babylon, which was a huge trauma. And during that whole process, their, their kind of logic seems to have been, you, you get these prophets sort of uh, popping up and saying, the problem is God must be, you know, God would keep his promise. He wouldn't break his side of the bargain and is supposed to be making things good for us. Things are going badly. It must be our fault. We're not worshipping him hard enough. So let's clear out all the other kind of peripheral minor gods that are also part of our religion. But they still for a long time kept Asherah there alongside him because that just so uh, just made so much sense to them but then you get this whole process of you know things carry on getting bad for them so the prophets are saying we're still not worshiping him hard enough we, you know, we've really got to just focus on him exclusively we have to get rid of everybody so in the end i don't think they get rid of asherah because she was a bad role model in the same way that had happened with anat it was just i think in we can't divide our worship anymore. You know, uh, you know, we can't divide it with, can't share this worship with anybody. There's can only be the one God. And once you've reached that, you've got a tipping point that once you've said that you've excluded the goddess that's always been alongside him. She also had her own priesthood at the temple, which again is, is there in the Hebrew Bible. If it's, if it's read in the right way, a priesthood which is made made up of priests and priestesses. Obviously, if you get rid of her worship, they have to go. So in the end, you, you just end up with a male figure, a male god, without any kind of balance involved. And you've always, once you've got to that point, you kind of tip over into, you know, it has all kinds of implications for the for the role of, of women in the society and things like that. So it, it's almost not, it wasn't a kind of a deliberate, or we don't think, you know, reconstructing the process. It wasn't a deliberate thing of saying, you know, well, we don't like women, Let's so let's get rid of the goddess. It was a longer process than that, that their own logic, the logic of the prophets, focusing more and more on that one God, in the end, inevitably ended up in that place. Um, but actually, it was in, when you think about it, it was incredibly high-handed, wasn't it? Because what these guys were doing was saying, as Clive said, well, you know, let's whittle down the gods and whittle them down. Oh, we've only got one left, one extra one left, and that's the, the <laughs> God's consort. So without... Without further ado, we're getting rid of her. 
we are, you know, forcing a separation here. Um, and actually, it's incredible, potentially incredibly insulting to your way, saying we're going to get rid of your wife because we don't want her anymore. Um, <laughs> and I mean, talk about creating God in your own image. I mean, that was just astonishing. And nobody really seems to have seen that. You know, the, in fact, the same process, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. The same, pro pretty, pretty much the same process happened in Christianity later. But just make, um, two points from that. Yeah, when they hit that point, which actually appears to happen actually a couple of generations after the return from the exile in Babylon, when the, the governor of Jerusalem, Nehemiah, and his scribe Ezra really sat down and codified the religion and said, this, this is what we believe now, and it's one God, it's, it's you know obviously one male God by that point. Two points to make from that. One is that this is when the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is fixed as a canon of religious literature, setting the doctrine. That also entails rewriting the history. So they've removed Asherah from the picture, but they then rewrite the history to pretend she was never worshipped, or when she was, that this was some kind of apostasy or backsliding on the part of the Israelites. So that, that's how Asherah actually ends up being left in the Hebrew Bible in order to condemn the worship that they knew had been a, a part of the official temple cult. So they rewrite the history. The other thing that happens is that although this becomes the established religion, the temple religion, the religion of the rulers, it survives underground. It's not completely suppressed. And this is where the story goes through into into the early Christian times, because the priesthood, Asherah's priesthood, you know, it was suppressed officially, but the cult survived underground. I love how you write and you argue very well. As you said, uh, it, it was suppressed, but she's still there. Asherah is still there. And in Proverbs, what is done is they basically split her up, as you uh, point out. We have uh, Chakma, or Wisdom, who's more or less the, the sterilized Virgin Mary, but you also have, in the same book, you've got uh, Lady Fallen Strange Woman, who's the more uh, sensual and powerful uh, aspects of Ashira. So she's split out, but she's still there. And then, as you write very well, then comes the Great Pivot, which ironically brings well it brings back this goddess in her form of sophia but ironically the bringing back the divine feminine is because of the very macho alexander the great isn't it uh, hellenism sort of uh, resuscitated ashira in her new form of sophia yes as you said this there was this figure of wisdom that starts to appear in the the Jewish writings, because there's still a psychological and spiritual need for sacred feminine. So, you know, the, as you said, is the parallel with the Virgin Mary in Christianity. There's, people still need that. So let's give them something, you know, even if it's a pale imitation of the original, the, the original goddess figure. Um, so you do get this figure, you're saying Proverbs, of wisdom who is to be admired and, uh, and followed, but only as a path to Yahweh. And the other side is split off into this 
the, the, the strange woman who is condemned for her sexuality and for also her, her independence. So you get this thing of splitting the two parts of the goddess and, and extolling the virtues of one but condemning the other. But nevertheless, it's still keeping the sacred feminine alive. Then Alexander the Great comes along, you know, conquers that whole area, and everything becomes you know, Greek culture and language becomes the big thing at that point. So for the first time, you've got you know a, a, a culture that is common across huge parts of the ancient world, which never really happened before. You know, everything now was Greek. Greek was the big thing. The it was cool so thing. cool. It was yeah, so cool to be, to be, you know. <laughs> and you start to get populations being mixed up. And in particular, in, um, the, you know, the great city of Alexandria that Alexander established in the Nile Delta, which becomes a huge melting pot of people from all over the lands he's conquered. And there's a huge Jewish community there. And it's often, it's not so much talked about, but we think he's, it, probably even more important, it's a big Samaritan community in there because it's Samaria and the Samaritans that we think hold the key to this. And they start, you know, it becomes a huge melting pot of swapping ideas. And from this emerges the figure of Sophia, which is the, the Greek version for wisdom, who is sort of a, a development of the the Hebrew Hokma wisdom, uh, still female. She begins to adopt a lot of the uh, qualities and attributes of Isis, which again, makes sense because this is all happening in Egypt. But it's very clear that it's not just that Jewish and Samaritan theologians and philosophers are looking around for, for taking ideas from uh, the Egyptian religion. They're recognizing, for example, in the figure of Isis that those attributes are still were already there in their goddess, and they're sort of just using uh, using the parallels with Isis to uh, explain her to an audience that is now very familiar with her. So it's still at at the core; it's still the, the Hebrew goddess, but she's now sort of getting bits of um, say Egyptian uh, uh, elements, which of course. That is where the whole thing started anyway with the Hebrew goddess. It all came out of Egypt. So, uh, But Sophia becomes a much more goddess-like figure than Hokma was, and she really starts to come back into her own at this point. Can we just say interject and, and say what people would have got from the idea of the goddess Isis? Sure. She, she was, I mean... You know, people know of her today, especially in the New Age community. Um, but, I mean, she was pretty amazing, charismatic figure. I mean, gorgeous for a star, like all the goddesses. But, you know, she was, by modern standards, very gorgeous. You know, slim, high bosom, you know, long, the, the classic long, dark hair, you know, young um, and obviously very agile and, and with a, a, a ludicrously flat stomach, you know, great. Um, but she, um, but she was, you know, she was a very well-rounded goddess in that she had all aspects of womanhood. Really, she was a mother. 
she had obviously been a virgin. She was um, also uh, a goddess of magic, so therefore of deception, of wiles, of guiles. So she would understand it when a young woman would say to her, look, how do I get this man? You know, I've tried everything, you know, what else do I do? So, you know, she, she would wait to hear the goddess telling her, well, you could always try so-and-so, you could always try so-and-so, that was actually maybe, you know, not necessarily um, above board, but... Um, but, you know, the, this was a goddess who understood women. This was a goddess who was a deep version of all that is in the feminine psyche, plus some. So when you have her emerging in the, in the Jewish um, Sophia, you have something quite explosive, potentially, you know, bu bubbling along under the surface. And explosive it was going to be. Oh, agreed. As uh, you write, uh, she starts taking really supreme aspects, transcendental aspects, inspirational aspects as, as with Apocrypha, like the Wisdom of Solomon, where she is called the artisan of all things, uh, Solomon's wife. She she is equated to the Logos by Philo of Alexander. She's uh, fascinating. And uh, for the audience, again, we are sort of jumping around, but uh, it really is uh, a very wonderful thread that Lynn and Clive Pohl to show the history of Ashira into Sophia and how she survived and was really out there for the asking, for especially in Alexandria and Egypt and those places. But why don't we get to really a patron saint of this very show, somebody that I remember years ago started reading about Simon Magus and thinking, you know, all roads in Christianity and Judaism lead through Simon Magus. I don't think it's Jesus anymore. And mm -hmm. your work really crystallizes it and puts it in a very simple way. And that is, well, who was Simon Magus? Well, he was, so, as you say, quote, Sophia's greatest champion. He was the one that was trying to keep alive and bring back again this ancient feminine Asherah cult for back then the modern world. Absolutely. Um, like you say, everything does run through him. And he, Simon Magus has become more important to us since attempt revelation which we wrote back or came out in 1997 in which we talk a little bit about this but ever since then the research we've done has just kept focusing more and more on actually how important and how clever he was you know he was a real kind of religious genius but of course most people will know simon magus as almost the antichrist you know um he's been <laughs> someone utterly condemned by the early church and the reason we think that is, is the reason they had to condemn him, because he was too much like Jesus Christ. But, yeah, and, and the other thing that's become clearer over all these years is his connection with the Sophia tradition. Because I think even when we first started this research, we, like most people, tended to look at Simon Magus as if he was, he kind of came out of nowhere, that he maybe put, various ideas together from this kind of melting pot in Alexandria because he was associated with that city and had come up with a religious innovation. But now we've, as we've got to understand more and more about the sacred feminine in Judaism and its suppression but underground survival, we now 
it's, it's now become clear that this is where he was drawing his his information from, uh, his beliefs from, his reconstruction from, because you know he makes a big point of the sacred feminine, certainly equates with Sophia, and for him is embodied in his partner that he works with, Helen, who is said to be, or he says to be, a, a prostitute that he found in the seaport of, of Tyre and purchased her freedom. But he develops this elaborate mythology where she actually is the embodiment of what he called the first thought, which was the goddess figure, which he equates with Sophia, who had been sort of sent down into the or forced down into the world of matter and forced to reincarnate through different female bodies becoming lower and more degraded each time until eventually she ends up as a prostitute in a sailor's town. Simon, say, purchases her freedom, but now she, she becomes the centre of his teaching as somebody that should be revered as the goddess. And what he's done is very clever because what had happened in the mainstream religion in the, the temple religion, is that they took the great goddess, gradually stripped away all her kind of attributes, and condemned those who worshipped her as adulterers and fornicators, turned her priestesses into, you know, they termed them prostitutes. So basically, de you know, degraded the sacred feminine into the very profane sort of feminine. And what Simon Magus does is enormously clever. He reverses that process by saying, well, you took the goddess and turned her into a prostitute. I'm going to take a prostitute and turn her into the goddess. Worship this woman. Worship her for being a woman and for her sexuality. Well, the interesting thing, too, is that, well, most people who know about Simon Magus or have known about Simon Magus over the, you know, the, the Christian era, think of him as a kind of Aleister Crowley figure. Um, because he was um, very involved in sex magic, or so we are told. But we do have to bear in mind um, that every word that we have about Simon Magus is written by his enemies. Although Simon himself wrote wrote a lot. Um, the only way we can read what he wrote is in quotes, in, in letters from horrified uh, enemies of his. So, um, you know, no doubt there was some exaggeration about what he got up to, but it, he certainly does seem to have practiced some form of sexual right with Helen um, and possibly with other women because um, he, he and his followers were said to be promiscuous, but maybe again that was just because his enemies were writing about it. Um, but, you know, he didn't actually come out of nowhere. Oh, Clive said, you know, we've been piecing it together and he certainly didn't come out of nowhere tradition-wise. But he didn't come out of nowhere anyway because he had a teacher. And his teacher was, drumroll, um, was John the Baptist, <laughs> yeah. um, which is the most jaw-dropping thing. Because on the one hand, you have the, the Christians' much-hated so-called first heretic, Simon Magus. On the other hand, you have the alleged forerunner of Jesus who fell at Jesus' feet saying, Behold the Lamb of God, um, you know, who is always portrayed as this kind of Puritan, um, strange person. Um, but actually, he quite clearly wasn't like that at all. Um, and Simon Magus was one of his disciples. 
as indeed scholars are now saying, was Jesus himself. Um, not only was Simon one of um, um, John's disciples, but so was Helen. So um, John the Baptist is kind of the key to all of this in, in that particular generation of you know Simon Magus and Jesus, because John obviously honoured women. John obviously carried the old tradition forward, because something everybody seems to overlook was that John baptised both men and women in public, in the River Jordan and other rivers. And this, when you think about it, was quite shocking. Um, and it was radical and it was egalitarian. Um, and it was the most amazing thing. And John quite clearly had no problem with women, uh, as spiritual partners at all. And clearly neither did Simon Magus. And, and as Clive said, Simon Magus was an astonishingly significant figure. Oh, agreed. Uh, as uh, you were just mentioning, I forget it's in the pseudo Clementines, or I forget there's so much, uh, they were really scared of him. He was the father of all heresies, the father of Gnosticism. So there's a lot of polemics. And um, one of them, yeah, John the Baptist had 30 disciples. Helen, she was one of the disciples. She was Luna, which meant the 30, the, the moon cycles. And I would honestly say when I look at the research of Tobias Churton and April DeConnick, I think the the argument for these for Simon and the Simonians and the Gnostics for uh, sex rights is probably very strong. It might not all be polemics when you start looking. And, of course, it goes right back to Asherah, a goddess of sexuality. And you have a great section on the temple prostitutes that even had male temple prostitutes. It really was part of uh, spirituality and fertility back then. And But I want to say, too, is I love how you write. And let me quote you. You say, when it comes to Simon, it comes down to, quote, the material world is a product of rape. Now, this goes, of course, to the idea, the Gnostic idea of the world being created by the Demiurge, and we live in a false world of illusion. We need to find our inner divine spark. But it's also a great allegory that the world has been raped because the divine feminine and women in general have been suppressed and raped and put down that this is the world we get. Civilization is a fallen world, and Simon saw it and wanted to restore it. Mm. Absolutely, and it's extraordinarily modern way of thinking. He, put, you know, he did that. The problem with the world, with creation, is the way women are treated. And if we treat women right, you know, that's the way things are going to improve for us. Now, I mean, he's writing it in a religious term, but he's also obviously meaning to apply that literally, you know, in our everyday lives. Now, in the modern world, I guess people may not think in the kind of religious term necessarily, but certainly we think about it in, in the everyday world. You know, the problem with things today is the way we treat women. But And so Simon Magus was, was saying that, you know, 2000 years ago, it's, you know, the fact, but he, you know, he was doing it in response to the fact that he knew that in his religion, it had this element of the sacred feminine that had been taken away, had been stripped out, suppressed, and history rewritten to pretend it was never there. But he knew, you know, the books say that it was never there, but the traditions were part of it, they would remember it. So, he comes up with it, you know, you can just look at it as a metaphor. It, it could mean it could, quite literally, 
because the, the, the creation story that he has is that it kind of follows the demiurge idea that you, you have a, a creator God that creates the entire cosmos, but then at the lower levels, the material level, that job is sort of, in a way, delegated to a lower creative force that in Simon's system is what he calls the first thought, which is female and is linked to Sophia, linked to the Holy Spirit, which is an idea that's also taken from the Jewish Sophia literature that has wisdom, Sophia, as actually being the the entity, the female entity through which God creates the world. But in Simon's system, he said, during that process of creation, something went wrong because he... Uh, so Sophia creates some lesser powers, you know, angels and, and so on, who actually do the job of creating the material world. But they turn against her. They turn on her. Uh, they force her down into the world of matter and they do literally rape her and suppress her to, to keep her under their power. And that's when they they force her to into the material body um, into uh, a, a female body. She passes through incarnation and inca- incarnation beginning with great ladies such as Helen of Troy. But within each incarnation, the powers, the, the lesser powers force her deeper and deeper until she ends up as a you know, prostitute in a seaport. So, you know, whether Simon is teaching this as his literal reconstruction of how creation actually happened or whether he's just using it as an enormously powerful metaphor for what had happened to his religion, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, what he's saying is still incredibly powerful and st- incredibly true then and now. Would you like to tell the audience where they can find out more about you? Uh, yeah, our website is www.picknetprince.com. It's P-I-C-K-N-E-T-T, prince.com, which tells you all about us. It tells you more about the book. You can order the book from there. And all our other books. And all our other books. Mm. So, so yes, please do, to give, give it a look. And and you can and buy the book buy via it. our website. Yeah. Via <laughs> our website. Oh, no, from Amazon. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, and, and thanks for inviting us on today. Oh, it's yes, thank ab- you very much. Absolutely. Oh, the pleasure has been all ours. I highly recommend the audience please get When God Had a Wife, The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine in the Judeo-Christian Tradition. There is so much more in the book about Simon, about Jesus, about the ancient worship of the, the goddess that we we didn't even get to cover, like the Queen of Heaven, the Cherubim being female goddesses, the... So much more. So, audience, uh, get that book and uh, let's balance things out. And uh, finally, Lynn and Clive, thank you so much for coming on AM by Gnostic Radio and sharing some of your gnosis. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks for having us on. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of a memorable interview on a topic that has been a cornerstone for Aeon Bite for 13 bloody years. In our second part, we really go deeper on the history, myth, and ideas of Simon Magus, including why he saw the world as a product of rape. This includes understanding all about his consort, Ellen, the manifestation of Sophia. We'll certainly talk about the battle 
perhaps eternal, between Simon Magus and Simon Peter, and cover the Samaritan lore that brought about Simon Magus. Of course, we'll cover Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Were they a cipher for Simon and Helen, or part of the same Gnostic stream? And much, much more. As a bonus, and as I said in the intro, since this topic is really a cornerstone of this podcast, I'll provide a past interview with Robert Price, where he also provides a historical view of Simon Magus. As another bonus, I'll provide our interview with April DeConnick on the goddess in Judaism and Christianity, including the feminine identity of the Holy Spirit, based on her book, Holy Misogyny. You'll be blown away at this episode that is basically an audiobook. Again, it's a memorable show, so please become a patron at Patreon or AB Prime member for the full blasphemous dope. Let's continue growing this red pill cafeteria, and I promise you we'll find so much more on this ancient Gnostic magician and the lost goddess. Both more needed than ever. We've only just begun. I am 100% audience supported, and you won't find this Gnostic content and many of my guests anywhere else in cyberspace. Or even meat space. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your soul back. By now, you should know how to subscribe and find so many infernal rewards that includes being part of a growing heretical community in both a private Facebook group and a Discord channel. As Philip K. Dick said, Simon Magus lives. Now it's time for you to truly live instead of dying slowly in the Black Iron Prison. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Hello and goodbye as always. (laughs) 